welcome to the penultimate session of the People's COVID Inquiry, which looks at the impact of the pandemic on people. I am Wendy Savage, President and a founder member of Keep NHS Public in 2005. Keep NHS Public has called this inquiry now because we doubted that the government would start an inquiry in time to learn the lessons from the policy failures which have led to the UK having the highest COVID death rate of any OECD country and over 150,000 deaths. Since we started, the, the Prime Minister has now announced an inquiry in the spring of 2022. But does this mean they start to prepare for an inquiry then or start taking evidence then? Both times are too late and we support the bereaved families for justice demand for an earlier start. The evidence we have heard in the previous seven sessions has been in turn shocking, enlightening and moving. The dual select committee's questioning of Dominic Cummings last week suggested that the Prime Minister's reluctance to take COVID seriously lasted beyond his own hospital admission and led to a delay in the lockdown in March last year and an estimated 28,000 unnecessary deaths. Cummings' evidence that Man Hancock reassured the Prime Minister that patients would be tested before being released from hospital to care homes has been denied by Mr Hancock, but NHS documents suggest that this did happen before there was an adequate testing in place. The dysfunctional nature of the Downing Street office was presented in a compelling way which was devastating. The country needs and deserves leadership of integrity with actions based on public health principles and the values of the NHS frontline staff. Our inquiry has dealt with facts. The evidence once heard by the panel will form the basis of their conclusions which will be shared with the government. We are grateful to the panel and to all the witnesses who, who have or have agreed to appear over our planned nine sessions. Um, tonight, um, if you go to the bottom of the screen, you will get the live captioning um, icon of CC, which enables you to, to look at the closed captions, or you can look at that on the chat. Links will be posted in the chat throughout the session, including newsletters, sign-ups, and more. The video of this session is being recorded and will be available to watch again. Now let me introduce our panel. We're very fortunate to have them. The panel consists, chair is Michael Mansfield, UC, internationally renowned human rights lawyer, currently involved in the Grenfell Inquiry, and he has represented the Stephen Lawrence family, Hillsborough families, and many others. Professor Nina Modi, is Professor of Neonatal Medicine at Imperial College, London, 
and President, UK Medical Women's Federation. Dr. Talona Oni, urban epidemiologist and public health physician at the Medical Research Council Epidemiology Unit in Cambridge. Um, Dr. Jackie Davis, NHS consultant radiologist, author and BMA council member, um, appearing in a, a personal capacity as are all the panel. Our barrister is Lorna Hackett, who is the counsel to the inquiry. It is my honour to hand over now to Michael Mansfield. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, I, uh, one of the things about this whole process is we can, at least I can't see who you are or how many there are of you, but I think as, uh, on behalf of the panel, we would like to thank all those who've sat with us from day one. We started in February. It's something that needs to be remembered. And we've been going ever since, every two weeks, with a series of witnesses carefully examined, as well as receiving a lot of written evidence, which is all going to be published in the wrong one, but we're going to come to certain conclusions, which we hope will be of great importance for the British public, and hopefully for the government as well of the day. But what has happened in that period since February, which bears upon what we're doing as an inquiry, is that there have been a gradual and incremental surge towards the need for a judicial public inquiry. When we started, there were hardly any cries for that. Boris had announced something last July, and it won't surprise anybody that nothing had been done. Nothing. And of course, the reason nothing had been done is, one, he hadn't got the pressure of the bereaved families that he now has, but also, of course, I have no doubt, and we have no doubt, he was concerned about the kind of allegations that have been made over the past week by uh, Dominic Cummings. We're not here at the moment to decide who's telling the truth, except the British public, I'm quite sure, having been treated and subjected to this um, almost circus of politicians. Uh, I've had enough of the lies, and they're big ones. They can't all be telling the truth, and that should be discovered now, not next year, and not when the report comes out five years after that in 2027. What the bereaved families are now saying, quite rightly, is it needs to be now. Well, the now is performed by us asking those questions. And obviously, inferentially, where witnesses do not appear having been invited, then they must be on notice that adverse inferences could be drawn from their non-appearance. Tonight, we have a lot to get through. Uh, there will be no break. We, not, we sometimes do have one, but there are, in fact, unusually six witnesses to get through in the time available, and we will do it to the best of our ability, or Lorna Hackett will certainly lead us in that direction. However, there is going to be one unusual feature, at least for us, but not for public inquiries, and that is two witnesses you're going to get for the prize of one. Two will be appearing together because they're both experts and they're both authors of a joint report. Now, this does happen in cases, civil cases and inquiries. It's called by the legal profession hot tubbing when they're both in the same, as it were, tub uh, witness box. Well, we haven't quite got that facility here. However, they will be appearing together. But that does mean we have got a, 
uh, an extra number to traverse in the course of a shorter space of time. So with those introductory remarks, thanking you for your attention, we've one more session to go, which will be even more interesting than the ones you've already heard. Over to Lorna Hackett, please, to start introducing and examining the witnesses tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. The first witness is Professor Stephen Reicher. Hi. Hello, good evening. I did pronounce did I pronounce that correctly? It's right. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Great. Started well. Perfect. <laughs> um as I understand it, your evidence this evening will be based on uh two um articles, uh, the first of which is, um, I'm going to paraphrase a little, from the fragile rationalist to collective resilience, what human psychology has taught us about the COVID-19 pandemic and what the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us about human psychology, that being the first, and the second, pandemic fatigue, how adherence to COVID-19 regulations has been misrep misrepresented and why it matters. Is that correct? Um, amongst other things, yes. Okay. Yes, understood. Um, I, I'd like to start, if I may, with the, the tantalising um, headline of your uh, of your first uh, article. What is a fragile rationalist, and what's collective resilience, uh, and why does it matter in a crisis? <laughs> okay. Well, I originally wrote something along these lines in uh, in March last year, right at the start, um, and in response to the notion that the public would not be able to stick with um, restrictions and therefore restrictions should be delayed. Um, and this was invoked again uh, last week by Dominic Cummings, who put it down to what he called uh, groupthink. Um, now, when this idea first came out, uh, it was ascribed to behavioural scientists. We were told that behavioural scientists were giving the advice that, uh, that British people, uh, perhaps people in general, but specifically British people, would not cope with anything like lockdown. So it couldn't be done. It didn't come from behavioural scientists. It actually came from non-behavioural scientists making assumptions about behavioural science and therefore giving very bad advice. And if anything, it makes the case for there uh, to be a need for people who know about behavioural science uh, making the decisions uh, which rely upon uh, notions of behavioural science. But it reflects something larger. So throughout this pandemic, I think the government have thought about the public as a problem that uh, the notion that human beings on the whole have a not very good grasp on reality, that we're not particularly good at dealing with uncertainty, uh, we're not particularly good at dealing with probability, especially in a crisis, we panic and we become a problem. Whereas, actually, if you look at the evidence from before of the pandemic, from research on emergencies, and then in the pandemic, you find something very different. Uh, you find that people tend to come together that they support each other, uh, and it's that sense of mutual support which is critical uh, to a response. And the role of good government is to support and scaffold that sense of community, and what bad government does is to undermine it. So when it came to the fact um, of so-called lockdown, and I don't particularly like the term lockdown for a number of reasons, but I will use it as a shorthand. When it came to lockdown, what we discovered was actually people adhered to a very high degree. Early on, it was shown that over 90% of people were adhering, that um, a lot of them were suffering. A study from uh, King's College London showed that about half of people were suffering, but nonetheless, 
they continued and they continued not out of personal self-interest but because they wanted the community to come out of it well and there are a number of studies since which show that that sense of community is critical to the response what's more when you look at in many ways, the practical support that has been given to people, when you have a, an event of this size, the state can never cope. We don't have enough state functionaries, we don't have enough police officers, we don't have uh, enough uh, uh, you know, local government officers of various sorts, we rely on each other. And up and down the country, it's been estimated that over 12 million people have volunteered. We've seen uh, over 4,000 mutual aid groups. And again, this sense of um, community, has been critical to those forms of mutual support, which go from everything from knocking on your neighbor's door to delivering food to walking the dog and so on. And the reason it comes about, and it's been my research for a number of years on groups and how groups are formed, is that in an emergency, we develop a sense of shared identity. I becomes we, becomes us. And that sense of shared identity leads to a sense of uh, wanting to help others because they are of you. They're not other, they are part of your extended sense of, of, of self, and therefore their fate is uh, is your fate. Uh, and you expect support from others, and that allows you to cope. So collective resilience is a quality that happens, if you like, between us. It's that sense of support from others. Now, as I say, I think the government's response has been founded on that misunderstanding of people as fragile, but more than that, they have systematically acted in ways that I think fracture, first of all, the relationship between government and public and between different members of the public. So they started off with high trust, uh, trust figures in about, at about 80%. They fell to about 30% or even below for a whole series of reasons, precisely because actually they differentiated themselves, they distanced themselves from the public, they created a sense of one law for us and another for them, and of course the symbol of that was Cummings and their defence of Cummings. But also, throughout the pandemic, for instance, they have used a narrative of blame against the public. They have said it is people's fault that they get infected. It is people's fault that they get hospitalised. Just a couple of weeks ago, Matt Hancock four times insisted that the people in Bolton were in hospital because they had chosen not to get vaccinated last autumn. Both uh, Johnson and Hancock again blamed young people for um, uh, killing their grannies, as, as Hancock uh, uh, put it, thus implying that when people don't comply, it's because they brazenly, egregiously break the rules. Um, now, if you blame people, I mean, it's counterproductive. Blaming distances people. It positions them as other, but it also then encourages them to blame each other, to start saying, well, the problem lies in that particular group. So they don't only fracture their relationship with the public, they fracture the public's relationship with each other. And finally, they miss the point that on the whole, you get infected, not because you've chosen to do particular things. It's not a willful act. You get infected because you're more exposed. And you're more exposed because you're more vulnerable, which is why vulnerable groups, poor people, ethnic minorities, are more likely um, to be infected, to go into ICUs and to die. There was a study early on um, in the first so-called lockdown, which showed that uh, poor people, ethnic minorities, were three to six times more likely to break 
the lockdown. There was no difference in their motivation. It wasn't an issue of motivation. It was an issue of not being able to stay at home and put food on the table. So the answer isn't then to blame people and to threaten them with fines and so on. It's to give support to people. It's to give them the means to do the right thing. And if instead of seeing the, pro the public as a problem and uh, employing a, a narrative of blame and punishment, you understand actually that the public by and large want to do the right thing. The, game quest the question for government becomes, how do we support people to do the right thing? The government have never done that. They've never given people the support they need fully to be able to stay at home. They've certainly never given people the support they need to self-isolate if infected. Um, and now, and I really fear this going forward, their narrative of responsibility is effectively saying, we wash our hands of this. Uh, it's over to you. And if things go wrong, it's your fault. Now, of course, people are going to take their responsibilities seriously. But let's take that issue, for instance, of um, staying at home if you're infected. Well, to do that, you need three things. First of all, you need the information and the knowledge to know when you need to stay at home. So the government needs to up that knowledge and up that communication. Their communications have always been woeful. Secondly, they need to scaffold that socially. We need to I think not at the individual level, but the, how we create social norms. So you're heroic, not if you struggle into work when poorly and under the weather, but you're heroic <laughs> when you stay at home and don't go in to work. And thirdly, you need decent sick pay and you need um, decent support to be able to self-isolate. So for the gut for the people to take their responsibility seriously, which we need to do, it depends upon the government supporting us. And their psychology, their, if you like, paternalist psychology that people are weak and, and frail and feeble and can't do things for themselves, their, their, their positioning of their best asset, the public, as a problem, I think is one of the fundamental failures of this whole pandemic. Sorry to go on at such length. That's all right. Um, I think, what, yeah, one of the things you, you've just mentioned about uh, the sort of inconsistency uh, of government messaging, um, mm. I'm quite interested in the, um, the the key messages at the beginning of the pandemic, namely stay at home, save lives, protect, protect the NHS, being, you know, we're telling you what to do. Versus, mm. And then that change to stay alert, control the virus, save lives. And that fundamentally changes the onus from don't worry, the government's got this, we're going to sort this out, to it's up to you now. Do you think that what, what sort of change, you know, from a psychological, behavioural psychological point of view, um, from government messaging at that juncture? Well, throughout that early period, there were a series of papers, and they're publicly available, from the uh, Behavioural Science Advice Group, SPI-B. And we talked very strongly about various uh, key principles, um, like co-production that if you want to bring people on board, don't do things to them, do things with people. If you want to be more technical about it, you know, position, position people as in-group rather than out-group. Um, we also talked about the importance that any communication must have clarity so that when after people listen to it, they know what they're supposed to do. Um, and the polling showed that 96% of people understand stay at home, <laughs> because it means stay at home. I'm not quite sure what the other 4% were thinking, but, you know, stay at home, I know what to do when people tells me that, people tell me that. Stay alert was understood by 31% of people, because what on earth does that mean? Um, how do you stay alert to a virus? What do you actually do in many ways? Um, and again, um, Spivey wrote a paper uh, 
um, uh, to point out how the change in messaging uh, went against the principles we'd put forward, um, and and that went forward to the government, and the government have systematically ignored it ever since. Um, so you get this double uh, level of, of of ignoring, right? They, they 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 ignore. We then send them a paper to show the the damage done by ignoring things, and um, uh, and, and 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 then that's ignored again. But the other thing I think is absolutely critical, and again I think it's critical because it's a problem right now, is. I mean, when you look at the literature on uh, on pandemics, it's not a particularly surprising finding, but people will not adhere to um, uh, safe behaviours if they perceive there's low risk. What we found is that actually people could be very heroic in terms of resilience when they see a need and heroic in terms of looking after others as well as looking after themselves. But people aren't stupid. You're not going to put up with all sorts of restrictions if you see no need for them. And the point about messaging is messaging isn't simply what you say, it's what you do. So if the government, for instance, open the pubs, now they might send a message. They might say, but be a bit careful. But the problem about that is twofold. The first is they only say it once. And the second is that most people do not listen to government announcements. However, when pubs are open, every time you pass a pub and you see it open, it sends you a message. It sends you a message 100 times a day that, well, things can't be too bad if things are open. So the decision to open up, the decision to open up on the 4th of July, Independence Day, a Saturday, to get headlines which say things like freedom, and so on. The Prime Minister messaging that people should go to the pub as their patriotic duty and go back to their office were all in effect saying to people things aren't dangerous. And we're repeating exactly the same mistakes this year because the decision to open up on the 21st of June is not coincidental. It's Midsummer's Day. It leads to exactly the same headlines and it sends those messages which say to people there is no need for caution. Now, some people have argued that as behavioural scientists, we've been engaged in a campaign of fear and terror. Actually, that's a completely wide of the mark. We all know that fear as a message is not very effective. If you invoke too much fear in people, they ignore things because there's nothing you can do about them. What you will need to do is give people, number one, a realistic understanding of risks, but secondly, what you can do about them to mitigate. Because if people have a sense of efficacy and, and, and mastery, they can do something uh, about it. I always use the analogy, it's a bit like saying to your children, look, you know, crossing roads is dangerous. I'm not doing that to terrify them and giving it, doing it to give them a realistic sense of risk. And then I tell them what to do to keep themselves safe. Don't cross at the corner, you know, cross on a level co uh, crossing. You know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember the green co cross uh, code. Now, similarly, the problem this government has done, uh, I think, is to systematically message in a way that we don't have a realistic understanding of the risks sometimes. And what is more, we don't have an understanding of the mitigations, that sense of efficacy and mastery, which is necessary. And I think all those have been central problems of the, of, of the communication. So as we approach the dangers of a third wave, how would you summarise the lessons that the government must learn from past mistakes and implement now? Mm. 
Well, number one, I would say um, throughout the pandemic, um, very few governments regret caution. Many governments regret moving too fast. Um, I think right now we are in that situation of decision making under an uncertainty, which is always difficult because there's no perfect answer and every answer, every uh, decision carries risks. So if we um, decide to open up uh, and there is a spike in infections, if we discover that still um, the uh, the new Delta uh, uh, virus, as we've been calling it since a couple of days ago, um, actually not only leads to more infections, but those infections have serious consequences, then we will be in very deep trouble indeed. And the danger is that if we wait until we're certain, i.e. we see that there are those hospitalizations and deaths, it's too late. You can't back out. Okay? Um, so there's a very real risk if we carry on. If we don't carry on, then, uh, uh, sorry, if we uh, decide not to carry on and we pause and it turns out that uh, the Delta variant isn't that serious, then yes, we've held people back a little bit for a week or two. Um, I personally think the balance of risks is such that caution would be sensible. But I think we've got to understand why we've got into this bind, because I think that's critical. The government, when it set out its so-called roadmap, talked about um, data, not dates. That was the official line. But in practice, and we, we've all seen it a hundred times, well, a thousand times, um, you know, this is what's going to happen on 17th of May. This is what's going to happen on 21st of June. Data, not dates, has turned into dates, not data. And once you set up dates as absolute, people begin to invest in them. They invest in them emotionally. And they invest in them practically. They start paying for holidays. What's the more, the government has invested so much political capital that whatever the data, it then becomes almost impossible for them to back out. And as a result of that, they find themselves in an even worse bind. And they deal with that in two ways. The first is by contradictory messaging. So on the one hand, they say, you can travel internationally. And then they say, but don't travel internationally. And then they say, you know, you can hug, but don't hug. And then they say there are no restrictions into hotspots, but please don't travel in and out of hotspots. So that leads to contradictory messaging, which makes things even worse. And in recent weeks, I think there's begun to be a tendency which is even more worrying. I mean, right from the start, the government ignored evidence. We know that. They ignored it um, in multiple ways uh, from multiple people. They certainly ignored it after the 22nd of September, I think it was, when, when Sage called for a circuit breaker. They waited for two months. They've ignored data. Now they're beginning, I think, almost to manage and suppress data. So as two examples, when the Public Health England data came out about uh, the, uh, the Delta variant uh, uh, during, was it, was it just over a week ago? Um, first of all, they had a press conference where they briefed that it was good news. Then they released three documents at 10.30 on a Saturday night when we were, of course, all watching the Eurovision Song Contest and urging the Brits to win. Um, that didn't come out too well. Um, and what was interesting, when you looked at those documents, you found that for all the talk about this being good news, Public Health England had actually increased the alert level for vaccines from amber to red, thus suggesting that the fourth criterion of the roadmap, that we shan't proceed if there are new variants which um, substantially alter the risks 
um, that that fourth criterion hadn't been met. The government's own criterion hadn't been met. What's more, the evidence on uh, infections in schools has still not been released. That the unions and parents have asked for it to be released. Um, they've they've asked why it's not been released. It seems that number ten has been involved in the decision to have it be uh, be released. We know enough to know that infections are increasing in schools. The surmise is because it goes against a policy decision, which has got little scientific basis, to take away the use of masks in schools. So it's beginning to look as if the government actually has got to a stage where, as I say, it's not just spinning or ignoring information. That's one thing. It's actually managing uh, politically the release of information and even suppressing information. I think that's very serious indeed. Um, I don't have a huge amount of time left to ask any questions, but I'm going to ask you one more, if I may. And that is, I, I was wondering if you could comment on, uh, we've heard from frontline staff, NHS staff, who mm. have given their lives to the NHS. They've been trained by them. They're invested in them. It's a vocation. It is their life's work. They wouldn't mm. do it if they didn't feel passionately about the people that they looked after and the institution which, uh, which employs them. Mm. And um, they can see... Um, and have done for 15, 16 months, uh, that the NHS is not being supported. Um, and they feel let down that this institution, uh, which they've given their all to, has be has not been supported. What do you think sort of psychologically is going on for, for those people? And what's the impact on uh, collectively NHS and frontline workers as a result? Because they want this supported and it's not being supported. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of psychological work on burnout. Um, and what is it that leads you to, to, to that state where you feel you can no longer do your job? And it, it, it's not workload per se. I mean, workload is, of course, part of it. But the thing that really undermines people is a sense that however much you work and however much effort you put in, you still can't do your job properly. You still can't achieve the thing for which um, you know you've you've dedicated uh, yourself. That however much you identify with a work, it's almost as if what you do turns against you. And I think that situation where you work all you can, and yet still it's undermined. It's undermined in a whole series of ways. It's undermined in terms of uh, policies which put extra load on you. So for every person you look after, you know, 10 new ones come through the door. Um, it's undermined in terms of you being put in impossible situations where you've got to make choices between, um, you know, people having uh, urgent cancer surgery and, uh, and, and, and beds for people coming in uh, with, with, with COVID. It puts you in a position where almost your own efforts turn against yourself where far from your efforts achieving what you believe in, actually, you're not being able to, uh, to do those things. And I think that's profoundly demoralizing. And I think it leads to profound uh, burnout. And actually, when you look closely at times where uh, staff take, take collective action, um, they, money is a symbol. Money tells you something. Money tells you, um, you know, how much you're valued. Um, and for low-paid staff, of course, it's a it, it it can be the difference between being able to survive and not being able to survive. And let's not underestimate that. But you know, for many people, people take action when things happen which stop them being able to do the job 
in the way that they believe uh, in. And I think that's certainly true of nurses, uh, and I think it's true of of doctors. And I think, I mean, it, it, in a sense, the 1% is almost more insulting than giving nothing at all. It implies that this is some sort of uh, reward. I, 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 my suspicion would be that many medical staff would, you know, would give up uh, 1%, perhaps they give up more than 1% if they were put in a position where they had the resources, where they had the, you know, the PPE, where they had the support to do their job possible, uh, uh, properly. And I mean, if, if there is one lesson, I think, to come out of this pandemic, is that when you take things away from the NHS, things go badly as they have with our test and trace system. I mean, still, the question is, why on earth is it not based on local public health, where local uh, contact tracers know their patch, are trusted by people, can knock on doors, you know, shoe leather epidemiology? Um, why has it gone so badly? Why have we spent £37 billion on a system which isn't fit for purpose? But on the other hand, when you roll things out through the NHS like vaccines, things go remarkably well. And if anybody has saved, uh, you know, the, the UK in terms of our pandemic response um, uh, and, and, and saved the government, which has made, made so many mistakes, it, it's clearly the NHS. And yet the NHS isn't rewarded, it's punished for it. And I think that puts you in an impossible bind. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor Stephen Reicher. I should just say that you are uh, at a Professor of uh, Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of St Andrews. <laughs> but I'm going to pass you back to the panel now. Thank you very much. Hey, yes, thank you very much. I'm going to <clears throat> ask the first question. I know Dr Davis has got a couple that she wishes to ask. I, I want to um, actually unload a, a, a situation I'm grappling with and I think we're all grappling with, and the, the, the benefits of this inquiry is we're doing it now. We're not waiting to next year or 2027. And I think people are watching because they're interested in the interface between what has been developing over the last year and what we're now facing. Mm -hmm. So what, and you, you brought in the question of the vaccine. So the, the, the the midsummer day and the, and the tokenism of that, we understand. But there are two, there are two tensions here, and I want to see if there's any possibility of resolving them. If you, if you just go ahead and then discover you've made a mistake, it's too late. That was mm. one of your points. Mm. The alternative is you don't go ahead and you, and you wait and you wait. How long do you wait? At what point do you say it's safe? Because I want to say, on that basis, it's never safe. Hmm. It's never going to be safe. The vaccine doesn't actually, it, it, it's an important factor. And you may want to bring that into the equation. So we can't wait to find out. You know, next year it's nearly safe. But the point that's being made many times, and we've heard it in this inquiry, is that we're facing, a, a yet again, a very unusual and a particularly unpredictable future in which you're dealing with a virus that is rather agile and there are going to be variants even within the last week you've got delta one and delta two now mm. in spite of the vaccine and we're only talking about the vaccine in the uk anyway unless you know everyone everywhere you know the point obviously too well yeah. those are the tensions that people are saying well you know if i were in government what would i do mm. and that that's the question 
Okay. And of course, that's an absolutely central question, which goes to the core of the issue. Throughout this pandemic, people have often characterized uh, people like myself as, as, as pro-lockdown or lockdown fanatics. Um, to me, that's the opposite of the truth. Because if you look at the response, what has happened is that we've always been reactive to the virus. So infections have spiked, we've imposed restrictions, we've done nothing in the interim, uh, they've gone down, we've lifted restrictions, they spike again. And uh, I, myself, and I'm part of Independent Sage, we've always argued for um, maximum infection suppression. So that what you do is you have an integrated strategy to bring down the levels of infection through a better test and trace system, through support for self-isolation, through making environments safe in the sense of being properly ventilated and, uh, and, and, and so on, so that you can get infections low enough that then when you have outbreaks, you can deal with them in targeted ways. You don't need lockdown. So lockdown is always a failure. It's a failure of infection uh, suppression. And the future for me is one of opening up by, number one, taking the measures to suppress infections sufficiently through the measures that I've, I've talked about, and then having really good outbreak control so that if there is a case, you can leap on it quickly. You can do the forwards and backwards uh, contact tracing. You can support people to self-isolate so you don't need to close down whole communities. Um, now, of course, the vaccines are a critical element in all of this because while they're not perfect, and I think one of the problems is that a lot of the time people talk in terms of binaries. Um, vaccines either work or they don't work. They work pretty well. They're not perfect, but they work pretty well. When people are vaccinated, and let's not forget that at the moment, less than half of people have got two uh, doses. And if you include um, uh, children over the age of 12, it's something like a third of us have got two doses. When everybody is vaccinated, I think we are in a position to then have an outbreak control uh, type of approach, which doesn't need uh, uh, full restrictions, which does need various forms of support. But also, and again, this is critical, and I don't think not enough is happening about it, when we move away from restrictions, from rule-based following, you know, so people say, well, the rule is I can't do this or I can't do that. What we need is to shift towards a risk reduction approach, which allows people to understand how the virus transmits, what makes a situation hazardous, and act in order to avoid it as far as possible. And if you have that combination of risk reduction, so there is a limited probability of people getting infected, that you have the infection suppression systematic measures which support that, and you have the outbreak control, which is a matter of um, uh, a combination of good test and trace and support for self-isolation, then I think we can live a relatively unrestricted life. But at the same time, the notion that nothing will change, well, apart from anything else, it's ahistoric. So if you go back to after the Spanish flu pandemic, various things changed. 
Um, one thing that changed was we went from the stuffy Victorian parlour to a fresh air movement, which uh, changed the way in which we designed houses, building regulations, the activities that people took part in, even the types of greetings we gave to each other. So there will be cultural changes. I don't think they're necessarily a bad thing. The final point I will make, uh, and it's the point that you made, is that we could be horribly parochial in the way that we look at this pandemic. Um, and when things are going badly in Britain, we think everything is bad. And when they're going well, we think that everything is good. Now, things are going relatively well. For all the problems we've got, the trajectory is broadly positive because we're vaccinating people. You look around the world, and in many parts of the world, things are getting worse. And more people are dying. And the infection is spreading. And it's creating new variants. And it does seem to me that if there is one almost primary uh, thing we should be doing, it is to do everything possible to support global vaccination. And I think one of the great scandals is the way in which our government is standing in the way of lifting um, the, uh, uh, the patents for vaccines. Um, because it's not just simply a matter of redistributing vaccines we've already got, it's a matter of increasing vaccine production around the world so that everybody can be prote uh, protected. So the final part of the jigsaw to make sure that we can live a relatively uh, unconstrained life is international solidarity to ensure the global rollout of the vaccine. And, and we should never forget that priority, but we repeatedly do. Thank you very much. Dr. Davis, I know, has got a couple of questions. Um, thank you. I know we're very short of time, uh, but I just want to revisit something that you were uh, saying to Lorna about burnout um, mm. and describing what I think is now being called um, moral injury. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, it, it was around before because people who work in the NHS for a long time now have found that they cannot do the job that they wanted to because of austerity, short staffing and all the rest of it. And so we've got on top of chronic moral injury, which people are suffering, we've now got acute moral injury. Um, and, you know, it's very alarming to read about how many people intend to leave the service after this because they're completely burnt out and they cannot do that job and they can't reconcile that. So in brief, because we are short of time, have you got any idea about how staff can protect themselves going forward without actually leaving the service. Um, and and because the government doesn't seem to care about what's happening to staff, and it's really shocking. Thank you. Okay. I don't have a simple answer. Um, and I absolutely agree with uh, with what you're saying. And I think I've seen the frustrations. Um, as I say, my wife works in the NHS, and the, the amount of time that is still being spent uh, making sure that you are uh, you know, meeting targets, which takes away from actually seeing people to meet those targets. So I think I think we can think about the various aspects of the organization of the NHS which make people do things which aren't entirely necessary and I think I think uh, I'm not sure that the target culture uh, has served us um, well. One of the things that has emerged in recent years from from my brand of social psychology is some fascinating work on the power of group membership feeling part of a group for mental as well well physical as well as mental health so being part of a group um well let me just give you a couple of examples if on retirement 
you will lose two group memberships, your work group membership and perhaps another membership associated with, with, with work. Um, you, are, you have a 16% chance of dying in the next two years. Whereas if you join two groups, perhaps you join a, a walking group and you join up, um, uh, uh, I don't know, bingo group, whatever it is, you have a 0.5% chance of dying within the next two years. Groups are good for us. Collective involvement is good for us. And one of the tragedies, I think, early on was we talked in terms of social distancing when we should be talking in terms of physical distancing and social connection. So I think the the sense of community and the communal groups and acting actually collective action is good for your health um so i would say to people there are lots of things to fight against um but fighting against them creates community and to the extent it's successful it's also a health intervention for yourself so i would urge people take action take collective action uh, there are very good reasons to take collective action and your health adds to them I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to cut you off, but I'm going to say thank you at this point, because as you know, we have other witnesses. It's been extremely helpful uh, and we wish you well. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and I pass, to, uh, pass us all back to Lorna Hackett for the next two witnesses in the tub. Thank you very much, Mr Mansfield. The two witnesses in the tub are Dr Rachel Sumner and Dr Elaine Kinsella. Hello. Hello. Good evening. In the tub. I haven't heard that one before. No, I've not either. <laughs> it's a good start. It is. Um, so I have here two uh, two main documents with a number of other links, um, one of which is called uh, Grace Under Pressure, Resilience, Burnout and Wellbeing in Frontline Workers. And the second is It's Like a Kick in the Teeth, the Emergence of Novel Predictors of Burnout in Frontline Workers During COVID-19. Um, the first was uh, 27th of January 2021, and this one was very recently published 25th of May 2021. Are you both the authors of those two reports? Yes, we are. And um, I also have a witness statement where you confirm that these are the matters on which uh, you propose to rely and they uh, reflect your true and professional opinions. Is that also correct? Correct. We also have other papers um, in press as well. So we'll be drawing from a range of, of papers. Understood. OK. Um, so my first question is, it, this is an interesting dynamic here because um, for the first time in this inquiry, we have a comparison with the Republic of Ireland. Um, so I, I don't know who would be the best person to answer this question, but in comparison with the Republic of Ireland, how has the mental health and well-being of, of frontline workers compared in this country? So maybe if I start with just talking a little bit broadly about mental health and then I can I can hand over to Rachel and she can go into a little bit more depth. So just a bit of background. So our project started um, in March 2020 in order to track the well-being of frontline workers across all sectors. So from healthcare to care homes and social workers in education, civil defence, emergency services, supermarkets and supply chain logistics and so on. We really wanted to get a wide variety of um, participants from frontline roles. And also we did want to compare the well-being of frontline workers in the UK and Ireland. Um, so we've been collecting data for more than 12 months, so both survey data and interview data. And what we're finding across the board is that our frontline workers are not faring well, um, particularly in the UK compared to the Republic of Ireland across those key indicators of well-being, resilience and burnout. 
Um, and those findings were particularly true in those initial few months. So when we collected our first baseline data and our follow-up studies, so that was from March to May 2020, it was quite a clear, significant, statistically significant difference between the Republic of Ireland and the, and the UK in terms of worker well-being, um, also in terms of resilience and burnout. But those the gap has actually decreased over time um, because... Unfortunately, frontline workers in the UK um, have dropped in terms of their well-being. Rachel, is there anything you wanted to add in there? Uh, just to say that the, you know, the motivation behind the study was really uh, us noticing very quickly the different tactics that were taken by our respective governments, with uh, the Republic of Ireland leading very much with a suppression and elimination type tactic, being very conservative, going very quickly in terms of shutting things down. And in the UK, you know what we've had. We've had the Cheltenham Festival. We had the Champions League game. We had many, many uh, delays, shall we say. Um, so that was the main, main sort of driver behind the study to really try to understand whether or not these key uh, sort of strategy type differences would play out in terms of the way the frontline workers were feeling. And I think, you know, a really important factor that Elaine uh, highlighted there is that we've not just looked at healthcare workers we have incorporated those but we've also incorporated a huge amount of other workers as well on the front line uh, people who who could have either perhaps anticipated being on the front line of a pandemic but many people that couldn't um one of the key differences in terms of these psychological sort of welfare variables that we've been looking at were also asking our participants how they felt about the government's response, whether they considered it to be timely, effective or appropriate. And for each of those metrics, those in the UK have rated lower, basically, in terms of their perception of the government's action, particularly in that first point that, that Elaine was speaking to first. And this seems to be a really important driver of each of those those outcomes. So whilst well-being and, and well-being was lower, burnout was higher, uh, resilience was lower in the UK, this was all being driven very, very much by the timeliness, their perceived timeliness of the, the government's actions. So we have poorer psychological outcomes in terms of mental health and well-being, and these are very much driven by the workers' perceptions of how how the government has chosen to tackle the pandemic. Yeah, you, you probably heard me talking to the previous witness, uh, Professor Stephen Reicher, about um, burnout and, and also about um, really work, frontline workers' views on government messaging and its consistency or otherwise. Um, I, I know you talk a, a bit of, in your research about workers' views of government messaging. Um, how do you think that's affected their mental health and, and their overall well-being? Well, we've collected a lot of data on this. Um, we've been really, well, sometimes we've purposefully gone out to ask people's opinions and at other times people's opinions have been volunteered to us. So as Elaine said, we've had a combination of, of methods here. So we've done survey-based work. We've also done interviews. So the interviews that were done over the summer last year uh, were very much, we were asking people very specific questions about, about their experiences. Whereas we've also been sort of passively collecting people's experiences through the uh, various updates of surveys that we've done. So we did a, an update at six months, which was October last year. And again, in March this year and we did ask participants if they felt they had anything else they would like to tell us that they can do and at each point whether we prompted them or not they have spoken about the government's messages they've described and this is in the words of participants the chaos of government advice and how the government's response has been indefensible healthcare workers and all 
UK frontliners, not not just the healthcare workers, have perceived the UK government's response as being less timely, as I said before, than those in the Republic of Ireland. This has changed over time, as Elaine has said. I think the, the government tactics in the Republic have changed somewhat. Um, so we have seen a, a, a change in this. In terms of the government response uh, with regard to its appropriateness and timeliness, there's been no change from six months to 12 months for the UK. That's been sort of consistently low, if we like. However, their rating of the effectiveness is continuing to drop, which is really alarming because these are the people who are you know, actually seeing it. They're on the cold face. They know whether or not this these tactics are working. They've criticised the messaging as being unclear and ambiguous. They've cited the schools and universities being open at the six uh, when we did our, our six months uh, data collection, pubs reopening in our twelve month data collection. At each point, participants have noted that there have been uh, holes in the net, shall we say? They've been viewing measures as being inadequate, particularly the lockdown that happened uh, before Christmas last year. And they cited that as effectively undoing all of their good work. Um, they also very much commented about the messages that the government delivered as being very much undermined by the fact that rule breaking was not consistently uh, dealt with. The very notable rule breaking that, that we're all aware of now. The fact that this, as Stephen was mentioning before, absolutely undermines the key message coming from the government and this has been for them devastating you know th th there is no other way to to put it i'll give one quote from a participant here and leave it at that they said in the first wave it showed how the population was standing together and the generosity given to those who needed it was incredible the nhs and frontline workers were thought of by all but after the government showed that the uk how not to stick to the rules the public started to have enough of the isolation and that's where it all changed. Yeah, I'm um, just. I mean, there are some really poignant quotes in your in your joint witness statement. I just want to read a couple of them out, if I may. Um, of one of them is from uh, October 2020. I feel valued in my team and organisation, but I don't feel valued by the public any longer or at all by our government in any way. And then we've got another one. It's been a roller coaster. My immediate team are absolutely amazing, but I lack confidence in my trust and feel hugely let down by the government. Cannon fodder absolutely nails it. Again, October 2020. And talking, I, I think, a little bit about um, how people are, are resilient in a in a group. These so people are faring better amongst themselves, but uh, more broadly, there there is burnout. There is uh, and again moral injury. It's a phrase that we keep coming across. The final one. Um, this, uh, I mean, reading these things is quite difficult. I feel like I don't matter. Every other person was furloughed for protection and made to stay at home. We got to work for peanuts with our flimsy PPE, crossing our fingers we can beat it. The government sickened me with their lack of empathy. 30% pay rise for them and a clap for us. What a mug I was for being a nurse is the way I feel. So, I mean, when, when you've got evidence like that, uh, and this is what people are saying to you, how are people going to fare longer term? What, what, what's the future? That's for either of you. <laughs> That's for either of you. Do you want to take this, Elaine, or do you want me to take it? Uh, I don't mind. Um, so, so I suppose we can we can talk about the fact that they're, they're faring quite badly at the moment, and uh, we can talk about how they have great sense of pride in their work, but they are still feeling really, really overwhelmed. And despite all the challenges, many of our frontline workers are actually really trying to see the silver linings in what they're doing and trying to find the positives, which is, I suppose, a real 
hallmark of their resilience. Um, and despite the fact that they haven't had PPE and they haven't had availability of COVID testing um, consistently, and they haven't had uh, support, I think it's quite extraordinary that they're still uh, finding some way to be resilient. And um, many of the healthcare workers are actually talking about leaving and they're talking about their exit strategy. Uh, and as you mentioned there, they, they really do feel let down. And this seems to be really linked to um, like the sense that so in the initial phases of the pandemic, um, they were being labelled as heroes and they were celebrated with initiatives such as the clap for the carers. Um, but ultimately, this has felt like an abdication of responsibility in the sense that, you know, this hasn't been backed up with meaningful compensation and support. And this has led to feelings of anger and outrage. And this is really driving negative emotions and negative affect. And we can see this over time as we see well-being and burnout dropping. And there, there, of course, we're seeing indicators of, of burnout. We're seeing indicators of post-traumatic stress syndrome um, and all those more negative indicators of, of how people are coping over time. We are seeing that the people who are doing well in the short term are those people who are showing resilient coping styles. And um, so that's the resilient coping style is basically where people are looking for creative ways to alter difficult situations or believing that they do have a sense of control over their reactions to a particular stressor. And um, so this seems to be good in the short term. But over time, if you're consistently being resilient, this can actually lead to burnout over time. And that's what we're seeing with some of our frontline workers. So while we can teach people to be more resilient in terms of their coping style, this can uh, be negative if it's over time. So therefore, we need to actually, uh, I suppose, support people properly from a psychological point of view um, as they deal with these really strong emotions. And, and I think that was really well captured in, in those quotes that you read out, just how strongly people are feeling and how let down they're feeling. Um, so over the, over the longer term, that's part of our, our work that we want to continue to track these people uh, and see how to, uh, well, I suppose to track in terms of how they're doing and how they're faring, but also to try to find ways to help them and support them over time um, is our plan with this project. Um, and uh, final question from me before I hand you back to the panel. Uh, what lessons are there to learn from uh, from the, your research and what, uh, what can be done in the future drawing on that research? Well, we've, this is always a difficult one to answer because I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned uh, from the work that we've done. I, I suppose to try to keep it short because I know we don't have too much time. Um, it, the answer that we get every single time is that action is not sufficient and it's not being done soon enough. We need timely, decisive action on the part of the government. And we need that for a variety of reasons. We need that to help stem the spread of the infection. These frontline workers are in situations where often they're separated from their families because they may have you know, people at home who are vulnerable. They don't want to take the infection home. We also have people whose social support is definitely fragmented because they might be working in smaller group sizes uh, at work. So they have less sort of mutual support from their colleagues. They're also feeling less sort of uh, broader social support from, from the country now as well. And that's, that's not necessarily from individuals you, you know it was spoken about at the beginning the sort of mutual mutual aid groups that have sprung up and how people have rallied around and uh, 
you know, the public absolutely have. The problem is, is that over time, the perception of this and how this is being fed through the media and the messaging that has come from the government about these types of behaviours has been hugely undermining to any of those individual behaviours. Um, you know, we all diligently, I've been sat on this couch now since March last year and, you know, but but nobody, nobody says anything about that. But we all talk about the time that there is a big party that's happened or people going to the beach or, or somebody going where they shouldn't. And this sensationalisation of rule breaking, coupled with the fact that it is not adequately uh, dealt with, particularly in, in notable cases, just undermines everything. You know, they're getting to the point now where they're starting to feel, well, why should I bother? If I am constantly going above and beyond, if these people are calling me a hero, uh, but they're not actually acting like I'm a hero, then, then really what is the point? And that is where we're starting to see these manifestations of burnout, starting to see PTSD, although we, you know, we're really far off being able to understand the true magnitude of that until this plays out uh, further. The gestures of appreciation that have been levelled at frontline workers have been wonderful and frontline workers have really appreciated that. However, unfortunately, over time, that has become undermined by the messages from the government, again, um, particularly in the case of, of pointing uh, fingers, as Stephen was mentioning before, singling out communities in the country for not doing something or doing something or, or whatever, you know, that there is always somebody else to blame for uh, for something, uh, some poor outcome that has happened. The inequity of pay rises has obviously not gone unnoticed by the frontline workers as well. So I guess the sort of the key sort of bottom line from our, our participants, and again, this is just, you know, a culmination of all of the work we've done so far is timely decisive action. This is an airborne infectious disease. We need to make sure that it is locked down, not just for the sake of the public, but for the sake of the people who are fighting for our lives on the front line. That gestures of appreciation are okay, but this has to be coupled with, with meaningful support. And it also has to be coupled with congruent behaviour. So make sure that everybody is held to account. And finally, to take responsibility, to take responsibility for what has gone on, to take responsibility of what is yet to come and be consistent with that as well. Um, thank you to you both. And again, I should say I'm failing this evening to introduce people properly. Uh, Dr. Rachel Sumner, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of Gloucester, uh, Gloucestershire, and also a psychobiologist, is that correct? That's uh, correct yeah. And then also Dr. Elaine Kinsella, Chartered Psychologist and Lecturer in Psychology at the University of Limerick in Ireland. I'm going to hand you back to the panel. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you both very much. I've got a question before turning to the panel to see if they've got any. Um, and uh, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm directing it to both of you. I was trying to think maybe it should be one or the other, because we we've heard from frontline workers on the inquiry in earlier earlier sessions, yeah, in the, on, on the medical front, hospital front, transport front. So we're we're very aware of. I hope we are anyway. We're very aware of the the burnout, the moral injury the hopelessness, the feeling that they don't want to go on doing this anymore. Uh, and uh, we are uh, very emotionally touched by the people we've heard and what you've said tonight. The question I've got is, to, you know, the, you've summarised the need for action, accountability, responsibility. Now, in what way do the people who you've interviewed and surveyed feel that that action is going to be brought about. It's a political question. So where is their voice being heard, if it's being heard at all? And is there any sort of collectivity amongst them to say, 
you know, we're not being listened to. And rather than walking away, we're going to conduct ourselves in such a way to make sure our message is supported and we get an answer to the, the, the very points you've been making. Or, or do you feel that's just beyond the boundary, that that's just not there? Because where, where are these... In other words, I'm looking for solutions politically from different governments, the one in the Republic and the one obviously in the north of Ireland, as well as Westminster. Or, or, or do you think there's, that they, did, they, the people you've seen, didn't have uh, ready answers for any of this because there's too much they've got to deal with already? I don't know. Just interested in... Yeah, that's a very good point. I think when we asked our participants during the interviews, you know, how they were doing, how they felt, many of them said, God, that's the first time somebody's asked me that, uh, and really broke down, felt really, really emotional in a lot of the interviews. Um, and it was the first time that they maybe had a chance to reflect on how they were doing themselves. It was that bit of time out. Um, so they've actually felt hugely grateful that we have tried to capture what they're saying through our quotes, through our qualitative work and also through our survey data. And we've tried to get that into the hands of as many people as possible. Um, I think based on our interactions with many of the frontline workers, they're all, well, they're all, most of them are feeling quite deple depleted and exhausted. Um, and I think it's hard to, to be so agentic and, and, you know, having that kind of sense of fight and, and trying to gather people together in, in some form of collective action when you're feeling so tired and you're just trying to keep keep going. So many of our participants just said they're just trying to get from one end of the day to the other, keep things going at home. Um, so so I think it, it, maybe it's hard for them to think in, in that way. And I don't want to speak for all of them. I, and there may be things happening that, that uh, I'm not aware of, Rachel. I, I'm not sure you want to come in here. Oh, just to say more or less the same thing, really, that, you know, that these these workers, they've they've been very grateful for the opportunity to speak to us. But I uh, exactly as Elaine said, I feel that it, it's it's maybe too early in, in terms of them being able to band together to, to bring this forward themselves. And we've always come from the perspective of wanting to help them to to speak out if, if they can. And, you know, we haven't been able to do any of this without them putting their trust in us to be able to to put this message forward and we very much hope that when the time comes and if they do feel like they want to uh, sort of start gathering momentum and, and you know bringing their own voice forward that hopefully we might be able to be a part of that as well if we can. Right can I just ask if any other members of the panel would like yes Professor Modi please. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Dr Sandra, Dr Kinsella you've given us um, a very clear account of your research and, and any scientist will absolutely accept the need to learn from research. So forgive me because I'm going to ask you a rather dispiriting question and I'm sorry about this, but I'm going to ask you to um, build on your research and tell us what the likelihood, the likely scenario is, were the lessons that you've so clearly articulated not to be followed. If we carry along this path of ignoring the clear evidence of, um, of, of, of poor mental state, of discouragement and despair that we have reached, could you project us into the future and tell us what that scenario is likely to be? And again, I apologise for giving you a rather dispiriting question to finish on. 
a dispiriting question, but also a difficult question. But, uh, you know, the, the, from the data, and we have been collecting this over time, so we have been able to observe patterns over time. What we are certainly seeing now is PTSD starting to emerge. Uh, burnout patterns are changing. So Stephen spoke about burnout before. Burnout has three main characteristics behind it. Exhaustion, which obviously, you know, there's physically and mental exhaustion. We could evidence that very, very quickly. Uh, there's feelings of inadequacy, which are starting to creep up now over time. We saw elevations of that at six months and further elevations of that at 12 months. And also cynicism and cynicism being one of those aspects that plays into, well, why should I bother? What can I do? You know, that sort of feeling of futility. And again, that is also increasing. Exhaustion was always high, but those other two aspects are increasing. And this to us shows a pattern. It shows a trajectory. We've also seen PTSD uh, start to manifest, which given that the very obvious post of post-traumatic stress disorder, we're not even at the post point yet. So for this to be emerging at this stage is a worry. Now, obviously, the, the data we've collected is on self-report. It's all, you know, they are validated scales that are used in this type of research, but we are not diagnosticians, so we can't sort of speak to, to that. But there are recognisable levels of PTSD uh, starting to emerge. Interestingly, recently in uh, some of the, 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 the latest uh, survey that we've got out and we're just pulling the data together now to, to produce a report, which we'll gladly hand over to the panel uh, when we've produced it, is that there are key protective factors that we identified way back last year in terms of how people feel about their own meaning in life. So if people feel that their life has purpose and their life has meaning, that can buffer against an awful lot of negative uh, impacts. And we noticed that at the very beginning, that this sort of presence of having meaning in life seemed to be protective uh, to each of those key outcomes, burnout, resilience, well-being. What we have witnessed from the baseline to six months and now to 12 months is that meaning in life is going down. So our participants are starting, and this has come through in our qualitative work as well, they are starting to feel hopeless. They are starting to feel uh, that they have lost they have lost the point. They've lost the, the drive to keep working. And so much of this vital work is about that personal drive because it's hard work. All of it is hard work. It's hard work and it's dangerous. And for people to leave their door every day to go into that hard and dangerous work, they need to know that it's worth it. And that it means something. And that's the really worrying trend we're seeing. Is there anything else you want to add to that? Oh, I think you've covered it really well there. I think uh, Dr. has got a question. So if you'd like to. Yeah, thank you. And if I could just build on, on Professor Modi's question there and your responses. And sorry if I missed it. How, how do you see this? Do you have any data or experience in seeing how this playing out with respect to um their physical health so particularly in the context of vaccine take uptake of the vaccine and particularly given the approach to um uh uh considering whether the vaccinations for healthcare workers should be mandatory and and lower case you know i'm just trying to understand and get a sense of your perspective on that interaction between the trust and the weariness and the powerlessness on one hand and actually the need to um, to get uh, healthcare workers vaccinated, but also dealing with this luck, luck, loss of trust and and um, and uh, suboptimal in some in some areas vaccination uptake. So, 
Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, we have we haven't got a whole lot of data on that. We do have some data uh, where we asked about their um, you know, their views on the vaccine, and there was some outrage that some weren't being prioritised in terms of vaccine. Yeah. Um, so while they were being put out to the front line, they weren't being prioritised on the vaccine front. Um, so that seemed to be one of the main points coming through. Um, Rachel, I don't know if you you have any recollection on on, that's very new data we haven't fully analyzed so it's kind of hot (laughs) off the press so Rachel you might have a a better memory of of the recent analysis I think particularly in the context of the healthcare workers who maybe haven't yet been vaccinated either by choice Mm -hmm. or by other Mm -hmm. other trust issues and the powerlessness and everything you've talked about might could potentially play into that Mm -hmm. or would need to be addressed well, there's certainly data from other studies. Um, and I, I know there's been uh, recently reviews published about different groups who are where they've maybe historically been treated um, less well by governments in the past or have, um, you know, institutions maybe haven't served their needs very well in the past, that there are these group-based differences in terms of uptake with the virus. And I'd imagine those group-based differences, whether that's um, ethnic minorities or women, and even even younger people are showing uh, less uptake and kind of the the, uh, millennials and so there does seem to be very much group-based patterns in terms of the uptake so I think there those group-based patterns are likely to play out for frontline workers as well and again it's about trying to understand what are the needs of that particular group why might the mistrust be occurring within that group and how can we get, uh, Steve, Stephen talked earlier about in-group members, how can we get people who are representative and are, who are trusted within a particular group context to try to understand the needs of the group and, and to, I don't know, I suppose, explain, um, you know, kind of some of the health messaging, the public health messaging to that group, um, rather than having constantly external people who, who maybe aren't trusted providing this information in a way that's not targeted or not appropriate and not addressing the concerns and the needs of that group. Well, that's very informative. May I thank you both for coming and having a, a twin presentation. It's been extremely useful. And can I take you up on the offer? I think you mentioned another report. You'd be happy to present to us or provide us with it uh, when you're ready. Thank you very much, both of you, for the time thank you spent. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. May I go back to counsel for the inquiry, Lorna Hackett, please? Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. The next uh, witness is Rachel Ambrose. Hello. Hi. Hello. Good evening. Uh, thank you very much for your um, witness statement. Um, I have here a witness statement dated the 1st of June 2021. Um, can you just um, give your occupation to the panel, please? Yeah. Um, so I'm a mental health nurse, I'm a registered mental health nurse um, with 15 years experience and my specialism is working with children and young people with mental health problems. Okay, so um, I also, I understand that you also work or you're in the Nurses of Colour Network and Nurses United Leader, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, I've been working with them um, since last year. Um, so I, during the pandemic initially, um, I was actually not working on the front line. Um, I was off on maternity leave. Um, 
um, and obviously saw my colleagues going through um, a really difficult time. So wanted to help um, in terms of kind of nursing activism. Um, so joined Nurses United um, and became one of their leaders um, and also helped to set up the Nurses of Colour Network. Right. So um, what was it like having a baby in the in, I presume, in or around lockdown or during lockdown? What was that like? Yeah, it wasn't what was expected, that's for sure. Um, So I started my maternity leave literally just a couple of weeks before the pandemic kind of hit us and the world changed. Um, So, yeah, my little girl came along and how we wanted her to come along as a home birth. We had like all our plans in place. Um, and as you do as, um, as a, a new parent, you kind of have expectations about how things are going to be. Um, and initially um, everything went fine. And then obviously everything changed, all the rules changed. And I didn't get to see my health visitor again. And I didn't get to go to any of the parenting groups, everything was shut down and I suppose I was quite lucky I had um, my partner and older children and but I know that a lot of mums particularly struggled around mental health and so and obviously that has an impact on um, your growing baby as well um, and their development when you're not able to kind of look after yourself in that time and and prioritise yourself it's really difficult and um, having to bring up a new a newborn at the time too because I suppose yeah at the early at the early stages of motherhood um, women really struggle with the loss of their identity and it becomes all about the baby and a, a lot of that is about um, uh, camaraderie and being in groups and of course all of that must have stopped so yeah um, so talking about just in terms of the mental health that you talked about um uh, of uh, young mothers and and the the services um you were on maternity leave when you came back after maternity leave um what was work like when you returned i mean what sort of mental health referrals were you receiving when you got back to work so um obviously working in cams i work in uh, inpatient setting um, when you say cams just so, can you just, uh, just for anyone that doesn't know what cat that is yeah um, child and adolescent mental health services and um, so I work in inpatient services so it's often young people who are experiencing significant crisis um, and they can no longer safely be cared for in the community at home with their family and um, their care has to be escalated and they have to enter um, into inpatient services um, and very often before the pandemic, um, we would be very low on beds. And um, you know, staffing. We know what staffing has been like for, um, in terms of nursing numbers, and um, they've been going up down over the years. Um, and the, once the pandemic had hit, um, those referrals became much steeper. There was a lot of discussion around, um, kind of planning around a surge of mental health referrals um, post lockdown and following the first lockdown. Um, there doesn't seem to have been um, a continued effort on that surge planning and we're seeing um, those subsequent surges now. Um, very often we do not have any available beds for children um, that 
at significant risk in the community um, and need to have a hospital bed. Um, and we're having to make decisions maybe around young people um, being released back into the community earlier than maybe necessary because um, we're having to weigh up the risks of those currently in the community waiting for a bed. So what sort of mental health issues do you encounter on a regular basis? And did uh, were they, I, I presume from what you're saying, that they were sort of exacerbated by virtue of lockdown. But yeah, if you, if you just explain... Um, what kind of things and what kind of issues people, young people face um, that, that gets them into hospital in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So we're definitely seeing a um, significant increase in numbers of young people with um, eating disorders, um, of self-harm um, and um, suicide attempts. Um, particularly some of these issues obviously are exacerbated because of isolation and um, not being able to um, have access to um, those networks so like we discussed with um, like people on maternity leave and um, not having access to professionals actually children have gone months without going into school um, and having access to their teachers and their support workers who would have previously been able to refer them um, to mental health services and um, been able to access support much sooner than what we're seeing at the moment so quite often a lot of our referrals have not been known to services and they haven't had access to that early intervention um, and they are significantly um, they have a significant weight deficit which has been hidden and um, whilst they've they've been at home because they have been so isolated Obviously, it's been really difficult for parents as well. It's not putting any blame on, um, you know, the fact that it hasn't been picked up. Parents have been busy. They've been working from home. They've been struggling financially as well. Um, and eating disorders and depression and self-harm, they thrive on that isolation anyway. Um, you know, they're quite hidden um, illnesses. Um, you know, young people will um, hide um, and obscure, obscure the fact that they've lost weight and um, wearing their, their bag of clothes. And, you know, quite often a lot of the um, flags that we might consider as, you know, there might be an issue there are also linked with just ordinary teenage behaviour, being locked up in their bedrooms. And, you know, a lot of them are revising and really stressing about the fact that they've missed so much school um, and they've got all these tests to do. Um, and all of that has just exacerbated um, a lot of the mental health issues that we're seeing at the moment. So um, moving forwards, how can we improve the mental health um, of these children and young people that you look after? I think moving forward, we need um, a significant um, boost of cash into services. Um, I'm hearing quite a lot at the moment about what's going to be happening education-wise, and we can see that the current government's plans around that are inadequate. But I'm not seeing about um, kind of how they're going to be able to top up the support that children and young people missed during lockdown in terms of their speech and language input and um, you know they might have plans in place and um, that would have given them additional support with additional professionals and um, that they've not had access to and um, for months but 
for some young people for over a year um, and we need to be thinking about how we actually um, ensure that any missed time um, for children with access to those services are also um, picked up as well. Um, that's absolutely paramount. Um, we need to think about how we're getting um, professionals into schools. Um, there's still a lot of issues around professionals visiting schools um, because of obviously infection control measures. Um, but children with, um, for instance, children with autism find it really difficult maybe to um, access the support that's been offered online. So we need to be thinking about other ways that we can make sure that children get the support that they're entitled to. Mm-hmm. And definitely in terms of um, the early intervention and um, work that we know work is required um, in order to prevent young people from going into crisis and ending up in inpatient services. And um, it's not just about helping them once an issue um, is there and established. Um, it's also about trying to prevent some of these issues um, and making sure that they have access um, to the professionals and that the professionals are not burnt out as we've dis- discussed this evening with some of your other witnesses as well. Yeah. Um, Rachel Ambrose, thank you so much for your evidence this evening. I'm going to have to hand you back to the panel because I'm conscious of the time, but thank you so much. Thank you. I have a quick uh, one. It's a, it, it relates to everything you've been saying. You mentioned at the start about you, Nurses Unite now, is, is that an organisation which is concerned with the nurses themselves and their own, perhaps their own mental welfare? Or is it concerned with those and also the young people who you care for as well? I mean, uh, and could you just tell us a bit about that very quickly? Yeah, sure. So Nurses United, um, initially it was set up to support nurses, definitely, um, but also support and um, nurses in being able to become active in issues that they're really passionate about and obviously nurses we come into this because we are passionate about our patients as well and um, so a lot of the work um, that we do um, recently has been around um, the pay campaign in ensuring that nurses receive an adequate pay rise and um, but in terms of that, that's also about being able to have safe staffing and um, so that we can provide a safe environment for our patients. That is absolutely paramount. It's a corollary, really. And um, the last witness was asked a similar question in a way. I'm thinking about the future. I mean, who is listening to what you're saying? Because we're all aware of a, a government that's facing in many different directions. So how, how are you faring in getting your message for the young people and the nurses across? I think it's been very difficult. Um, like some of the other witnesses have said, we had all the clapping last year, the clapping for carers, the clapping for key workers. Um, but actually, we need the government to really listen to us and to actually take action um, we have a lot of support and a lot of the um, there's there has been a lot of um, 
kind of studies taking place and public support has been overwhelming thinking about um, pay rises for nurses um, and I think it was three quarters of the public support a permanent re- um, pay rise for nursing staff um, and overwhelmingly they support a 10% pay rise for nursing staff um, so that is something that we are definitely pushing but like I said alongside that thinking about safe staffing, ensuring that we're able to not only recruit nurses, but also that we can retain them. Um, I'm supporting student nurses at the moment that are coming towards the end of their training. And like has happened previously, I'm not going to be able to keep them in my trust. Where I work in the southeast, it's too expensive to live. They're going to be moving back home because they just cannot afford to live Mm. where we want them to work. Can I just uh, ask if there's any other members of the panel like to to ask? Yes, Professor. Thank you very much. Uh, just very quickly, uh, Rachel, um, if you could tell um, those listening today a little about the long-term consequences of uh, the sorts of mental health issues and emotional traumas that afflict young children, what what will the consequences be for these children as they grow up? The consequences are so wide ranging. Um, Like I said before, the fact that a lot of young people that come to us in inpatient services, they've reached a crisis point um, before they get to us. Um, This has a massive impact on um, their relationship with their family, who are often having to deal with really challenging behaviours at home for a significant amount of time before they come into hospital. Um, And that impacts on their relationship. Um, It impacts on their education as well when they're having to spend even longer periods of time in a mental health unit and they're not accessing the type of education that all the other young people are accessing. Obviously, we have a school within our unit, but it doesn't offer the same opportunities that young people deserve to have um, in their home schools. Thank you, Rachel. So by failing to deal with the problem now, we're actually amplifying the problem both for the individual children and for their families and for wider society. And and definitely for the generations to come as well. We know that what a young person experiences today, tomorrow when they become parents, um, that's going to be having an impact on how they parent their children as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. May I thank you very much for coming to give evidence and and help us with with all your experiences. Uh, And we wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Lorna Hackett, please, Council, could we have the next witness? Thank you, Mr Mansfield. The next witness is Professor Jonathan Ports. Good evening. Good evening. Um, thank you very much for your witness statement. Um, I'm not going to read out all of the resources to which uh, which are attached to it because it'll take me too long. But um, I do have a witness statement uh, dated the 29th of May, uh, with um, in which you confirm that the opinions you've expressed represent your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that still correct? Yes, it is. Thank you. Um, and also that, um, I mean, there's, there are a number of additional documents attached to it and links. So uh, the panel will have due regard to all of that uh, in coming to their conclusions. Um, can I just start by asking you to confirm your, um, actually, I think your, your background is pretty relevant too. So just a, a little, a, a posted career history would be useful. Um, I was a uh, civil servant and uh, 
government economist for about 25 years. Um, most recently, I was chief economist and director for welfare to work and child poverty at the Department for Work and Pensions from 2002 to 2008. And I was chief economist at the Cabinet Office between 2008 and 2011. Uh, and I'm now Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London. Thank you. Um, just before the first lockdown, you wrote an article which said, uh, don't believe the myth that we must sacrifice lives in order to save the economy. Why is that? Um, I think, and I think the um, one thing I will preface this by saying is that I think I am representing here a broad consensus of economists across the sort of ideological spectrum. And one interesting thing about this from a purely professional point of view has been that there has been quite a lot of unity among economists about this, and perhaps not in the way you might think, um, that we there was a clear consensus, um, both sort of anecdotally on Twitter, but also in, in the occasional surveys of economists, that actually the right way, the right thing to do from a health point of view was also the right thing to do from an economic point of view. That is, it was better to take whatever measures were necessary to address the health crisis, even at the cost of economic output in the short term, because the alternative of not dealing effectively with the health crisis would actually lead to longer term, to greater and longer term economic losses. In other words, um, you know, while obviously I and other economists are not experts on you know, lockdowns or exactly what sort of lockdown was the best or what precisely the government should be telling us to do, we still thought much better for the government to do whatever it takes to suppress the virus, to accept that that meant a very sharp fall in GDP in the short term, but hopefully a speedier and a fullier recovery rather than allowing things to drag on, probably seeing a sharp fall in economic output anyway as people took actions themselves to protect themselves, but also a slower and less resilient recovery. So in your view, uh, to what degree was the vast amount of public expenditure during the pandemic used appropriately um, to achieve the end point of controlling the virus? Um, so, uh, well, I would d d distinguish between that which was used to control the virus and that was used to mitigate the economic and social impacts of what government needed to do to control the virus. So um, I am not an expert. Um, you know, I, I am not able to give you anything more than you've already heard from people who know more than me about, for example, um, the procurement of PPE, um, the expenditure on test and trace, um, and the expenditure on vaccines. I mean, like most people, I take the view that the procurement on PPE was clearly hugely wasteful and occasionally corrupt, that the expenditure on test and trace was badly spent and mismanaged and therefore um, led to adverse outcomes. Um, and the vaccine program, by contrast, has been a great success. We threw lots of money at lots of different vaccines and, and that was the right strategy and it paid off. But again, I would emphasize I am not holding myself out as a particular expert on any of these topics. Nonetheless, however, the actually far more money has been spent on um, various other things like programs and business support schemes where I do have some expertise. And I think I would say there that on the whole, I think that has been money uh, fairly well spent. The government's response in terms of supporting um, people's jobs, supporting businesses um, and 
increasing benefit payments, the extra payments to universal credit, um, have on the whole, I think, been appropriate from an economic perspective and appropriate from a social perspective. Appropriate from an economic perspective because while costly in the short term, uh, they are likely to reduce the negative long-term impacts on the UK economy that will result if we allowed unemployment to rise, in particular if we allowed long-term unemployment to rise, or if we allowed good businesses to go under. Um, and I think, in fact, where the government has erred, it has been on the, the side of spending too little. Um, and in particular, the biggest obvious policy error, to my mind, um, has been the, uh, um, the, the failure to raise sick pay or to put in place a, an effective system of sick pay that incentivizes people who are sick, um, might be sick, have symptoms which suggest they might be sick or have been contacted by um, officially or unofficially um, that suggest that they've been in contact with somebody who might be sick to incentivize people to, to take time off work to self-isolate. Um, and that, I think, has been a real false economy, which has undoubtedly um, uh, inhibited the effectiveness of test and trace um, and therefore probably led to more people getting sick than needed to be and prolonging the pandemic unnecessarily. Um, so that, I think, has been the sort of biggest single failure on the economic policy side. On the individual programs, the furlough scheme, the self-employment income support scheme, the business support scheme, none of these have been by any means perfect, but you would, you would not expect them to be perfect in the circumstances. I think they were broadly appropriate and, and certainly better to do too much than too little. Um, I'm sure the question on other people's lips as well as mine. Uh, test, trace, isolate, support, uh, 37 billion. Was it worth it? Um, I think, you know, it is hard at this point to do a full uh, um, assessment. I mean, I think, to be fair, the uh, um, the one piece of, of sort of reliable near experimental evidence we have from uh, my colleague, uh, um, Timo Fetzer at Warwick, um, which looked at the incident where um, a number of test results were lost um, and found that when 15,000 test results were misplaced because of a spreadsheet error, that did lead to a significant increase in infections. Now, that's clearly a bad thing uh, that a spreadsheet error led to that. But the flip side of it is it suggests that the whole program itself actually did have some impact on reducing infections because the fact that a small part of it didn't work, if, if, if when it didn't work, infections went up, that suggests that when it did work, even if ineffectively, um, uh, infections uh, uh, um, went down. So I think it would be wrong to say that it was a complete failure. It clearly could have been more effective. And I think, to my mind, um, as I said, the a really big and unforced policy error here was the failure um, to, uh, to incentivize people, particularly lower income workers, who actually do what they what I think, you know, the, what evidence we have survey suggests that most people when they thought they were supposed to self-isolate did at least try and where they didn't comply it was either relatively minor or it was because they could not afford not to comply and i think therefore one could conclude from that that the the supporting people to self-isolate was what perhaps the biggest and weak link in the chain and inhibited the effectiveness of the whole program because it just wasn't 
you know, the, it was perfectly understandable, if un, you know, reprehensible that the people who, you know, felt they had, they, they, in order to support themselves or their family, had to carry on working um, um, because they couldn't afford to survive on the, the, frankly, ludicrous levels of sick pay that we pay in this country. And uh, how do we compare internationally in terms of sick pay? Um, well, in terms of replacement rates for, for uh, um, compared to uh, um, average earnings, we are not only lower than anywhere, I believe anywhere else in the OECD, but lower by quite a long way than almost all of our uh, obvious major comparators. Um, just moving slightly on, on to something slightly uh, different. You've, you've talked in, in some of your literature about in the last 11 years, the focus has been on an obsession with deficit reduction, um, which obviously has left us vulnerable as a nation in terms of preparedness for a pandemic uh, and a crisis. Um, what, what has been, why has there been this focus on deficit reduction and, and why does that matter? Um, well, I, I mean, I think uh, the, the focus was initially um, back in, in 2009-11, as you may remember, justified by um, the frankly ludicrous at the time, in my view, idea that the UK was somehow going to go bust or not afford to be able to afford to pay its debts, or that the markets would panic at the level of our debt, um, and that interest rates would therefore go up. In fact, of course, interest rates on UK government debt, as in most other countries, fell and carried on falling. So that was quickly disproved. Um, and it was replaced by just, um, I think, particularly damaging in this context, this idea that somehow we had to reduce the deficit so that we would be prepared for the next crisis. But this is a very narrow-minded and excessively narrow view of what being prepared for a crisis looks like. Um, <clears throat> yes, it's helpful to have um, broadly sustainable public finances when you're going into a crisis, but it's also uh, um, even more helpful to have a health system that has some margin of spare capacity, um, a social care system that doesn't push back all its problems onto the health service because it doesn't have the capacity at all to deal with even the basic level of demand, um, councils that have uh, um, a public health function in place, um, and um, a benefit system that provides reasonable levels of support to people who lose their jobs um, and to low-income working families. And we eroded all that at the expense of the uh, um, uh, um, of this single-minded focus on trying to reduce the deficit, and that clearly left us not in a better. You know, so rather than fixing the roof that that uh, while the sun was shining, as George Osborne put it, well, we may have fixed the roof, but at the expense of knocking down some of the walls uh, um, at the same time, and that left us more, not less, vulnerable to the crisis. And I think you you see that. Also, I'm not a health expert, but in the sort of um, data that we've seen on um, differential experiences in life expectancy mortality before the pandemic, where in the 10 years up to 2010, we saw reductions in, or increases in healthy life expectancy across the income spectrum, still unacceptably large gaps between richer and poorer, but it was certainly not increasing. Whereas what we saw in the 2010s was a general slowing down of the progress that we've seen in the 2000s for everybody, but that being particularly marked for lower income groups, and indeed even a fall in life expectancy for some lower income groups. Um, 
And that it was both bad in itself, but was also reflected in these structural inequalities, which underlie what we've seen during the pandemic, which is this very, very high differential mortality gradient where um, most the most disadvantaged groups have clearly been most vulnerable, both to, uh, um, to, to you know contracting uh, COVID and to uh, getting seriously ill and dying from it. Um, and again, I think there's a clear relationship those two, between what happened in the run-up to 2020 and what happened during the pandemic itself. Um, looking to the future, what would be the effect on this country's finances uh, and, in fact, well-being and well, really everything? Terrible question. Um, if the government were to respond to this crisis with more austerity? Well, I think, you know, this is obviously very topical because you would have all seen today the, the decisions on, on uh, um, education catch-up funding, um, where the, uh, um, we previously had an estimate from the Institute for Fiscal Studies that the damage done um, to children's education during the pandemic um, could um, r- very roughly, over the next 40 years, cost the country about £350 billion. Pounds. Now, this is a clearly, a, 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 as the researchers who produced it would tell you, a very, very rough estimate based on very back of the envelope. Uh, um, assumptions, but it does give you an idea of the order of magnitude of the damage that you do if you uh, knock out children's education for the best part of the year. Um, Now, uh, the Education Policy Institute um, proposed a catch-up program which would have cost about $15 My estimate of how much education output was lost during the pandemic was about $30 So that sort of gives you an idea of the size of the problem. And Sir Kevin Collins, we know now, proposed that the government spend about £15 billion on, on catch-up. Um, so all of this gives you some idea of the potential damage and the sort of near-term measures that experts think are appropriate um, to deal with the size of the problem, tens of billions, certainly. Uh, and yet the government is providing £1.5 billion. Um, and I think that that is, it is almost impossible to see what the economic justification for that decision is for, for, for only funding such a small proportion of what any reasonable estimate of what is required. Um, you know, both, as I said, and, and this, is, this is both a social and economic uh, uh, case, there is a, a pure cost-benefit case for funding education catch-up. There's also obviously a social case in that the, the kids who have been most damaged by the pandemic are obviously those who are most disadvantaged because they have been least able to keep up with their studies through remote working or home learning or, or, or whatever. Um, but uh, um, I, I really find that the government decision on this uh, um, almost incomprehensible from, from almost any perspective, really. Well, I think and just this evening we have heard that the uh, the government advisor you just named um, on House Kevin, yeah. Um, has has in fact resigned on the basis that the plan falls far short of what is needed. Um, so, um, as we uh, approach potentially um, the dangers of a third wave, how would you summarise the the financial lessons that the government must learn from these past mistakes and implement now? Um, well, I think what we have learned is that um, you know. We shouldn't be worried about spending money in the short term. Um, it, the, the, we have incurred a very large amount of debt 
as a result of this uh, uh, crisis and the actions government has taken to support the economy. Uh, that has had no impact to, to speak of on market interest rates. In fact, despite all this, government's still paying a historically very low level of interest uh, um, payments on government debt. So the actual burden on the budget of the government debt um, is rather low, despite the fact that debt is, is considerably higher than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, um, and so while I am not uh, one of those economists who think that debt is simply never a problem or never can be a problem, it certainly isn't the first, second, or even fifth most important economic problem the country faces at the moment. What the government, you know, what is needed is to do what is necessary to definitively suppress the uh, the pandemic um, and um, spend whatever it takes to do that. Um, and after that, to reopen in a safe and controlled way and to get back to normal as as quickly as possible. And I think on there, you know, actually we have some good news. The estimates of the long term damage done by the uh, pandemic have tended to fall. Uh, the recovery, even in the, the partial reopening we've, we've seen, has exceeded expectations. Um, I did say uh, about a year ago that I did think that actually if the policies, economic policies were broadly right, there was no reason we shouldn't see a sharp and swift bounce back. And actually, um, that does seem to be what's happening. Um, I have no expertise to say whether this the, the, the prospect of a damaging third wave is a real one. Um, and, and, you know, that you have to go to other people than me. Clearly, it is something to be avoided. Um, and if it re requires an ex extending the lockdown and paying some more money, so be it. It won't be the end of the world. Um, whereas a third wave would do considerably more damage. Um, I hope, of course, like everyone, that, that we're not going to be in that position. We can continue with actually what seems to have been a reasonably successful reopening from an economic perspective so far. Um, thank you, uh, Professor Johnson. I don't have any time for any more questions, but I am going to pass you back to the panel now. So thank you very much. Uh, good evening, Professor. Well, I want you to help me put me out of my agony. And this isn't a medical complaint at all. I hope not. No, but um, it's simplistic in a way. And I appreciate I'm probably off the planet. That won't surprise many people. Uh, but... If uh, some propositions here, and then there's a question. If, as I think we may conclude, we haven't finished yet, that health comes before wealth, you don't have a healthy economy unless you've got a healthy people. So that's the first proposition. Second proposition, distilled from what you're saying is, and I think it was the uh, heading of one of your articles, more austerity is the wrong response to the coronavirus crisis. And you've just been explaining that. And happily, you said, let's not be worried about what we spend. You just said. Now I say to myself, um, where's all this money coming from? Because what's very interesting is we go through years of austerity, did enormous damage to all sorts, mainly the working population and particularly the NHS. And then suddenly there's a Velt farce. And they're talking in terms of trillions of pounds. Where's this money coming from? We already had a national debt even before we got into this. Oh, am I being facile here? Or are we just printing money and that's okay? Or where's it coming from? I think a lot of ordinary people, I'm one of them, 
just wonder uh, are this economists you know playing with figures here or, or, or are we dealing with real money what is, is well, that an answer to this um, one way of putting it I, and i think this is the easiest way is, is to, to say that look um many of us um certainly me probably quite a few people on this panel have for whatever reason um been able to continue working either because some of you have jobs in the NHS um and have been working um for for very good reasons um other people like me um have been able to continue with our normal jobs i can teach my students online and i can do my research at home um my income has not fallen during the pandemic my expenditure has fallen um you know um for obvious reasons i can't go to the theater i can't go to restaurants there are various other things i can't do or don't need to do um therefore arithmetically i am saving a lot more um and that my net saving is gone up and that is true of millions and millions of lucky people in this country um who haven't lost their job um where does that money go well arithmetically um everything has to add up the flip side of private saving is public debt saving that money goes to finance the deficit the national debt is not something that the uk when we talk about the national debt we're talking about government debt we're not talking about something that the uk owes mars or even germany we are talking about money that in this context for the most part the public sector the uk government owes the private sector people like you and me um our saving goes up the government's budget deficit also goes up and the two during this crisis broadly have mirrored each other that is what's been happening that's where the money's come from the money that i haven't spent on theaters and restaurants the government has been spending on keeping paying people whose jobs have unfortunately ceased to function on test and trace on ppe on the health service and all these other things um so obviously that can't go on forever over time you know things will have to return to something more like normal but it is entirely the appropriate response in a crisis and indeed you know um it all sounds outlandish but it's not that different from what happens during a, a normal war which fortunately we have not had for 80 years or, or so but that's what happened in world war 2 too uh, as well private saving went up public spending went up as well and the deficit went up uh, this is what happens in in moments of national crisis and the right response is for the government to do the right things and then afterwards um you have to restore normality um over time and in a sensible way well i've got a wonderful supplementary but i'm not going to ask <laughs> you now because i think other members of the panel yes professor yes that thank you very much thank thank you professor for i enjoyed your talk but i i must say i'm not sure that i I buy into your view that we want to go back to where we were because where we were wasn't doing terribly well I have to say um but 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 forgive me I'm sure you didn't quite quite mean that not not quite in that sense no. uh, absolutely so forgive me forgive me for putting it like that but I would like to ask you a question about language because language is very important in getting messages and meaning across and the question is why is it that um spending on support for business on supporting business for example is regarded as an investment but spending on health population health the health of the nation is regarded as a cost that seems to me to be particularly perverse particularly if you take um Mr Mansfield's comment of a moment ago which is that ultimately 
a healthy economy does require a healthy population. Um, well, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to sound too um, callously economist about this, um, but um, the definition of an in, uh, investment is something that produces um, a future return. Um, so uh, it's not the case that everything support to businesses um, is an investment. Um, most of the government support to businesses directly or indirectly during this crisis has actually been in the nature of current spending. Um, it's designed to keep them going, not to make them more profitable in the future. Um, but when a business invests in a new piece of equipment or even a new piece of software, because it generates future returns, future output, that is an investment. Is health an investment? Well, it depends. Um, there, you know, uh, we, partly for reasons of convenience, we tend to take the same classification that businesses do. A hospital is an investment. Um, it's a piece of kit which will last for 30 years. Uh, or 50 years or 100 years and will produce a return, not a financial return, but a return in terms of output to the, to the country over that period. So we do define that as an investment. Um, where you get, obviously, and where it's more difficult is with things like, and I think education is a good example. Um, education clearly is an investment, and most economists, if you press them, will say it should be thought of as an investment and treated as an investment in, when you're determining how much to spend on it. We don't treat it like that in the public accounts. Um, mostly, um, not because economists say we shouldn't, but because it's just very difficult to work out exactly what the return is and when you get it. But certainly, um, any sensible government um, would be thinking about the spending on education catch-up primarily as an investment spending, not as a piece of, not as, as current consumption. Um, and that perhaps is one of the reasons, not the main reason, but one of the reasons that they made the mistake that they did today. So, so perhaps if I might, might summarise by saying, I think a radical rethink of the conceptualisation of these issues is called for because it would very, very considerably help the nation if the health of the population were regarded as something in which we should invest. Yes, I mean, I think one of the things that, that I, 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 I think we economists, you know, as I, say, I was never in favor of austerity, but um, I am and still remain uh, um, in favor of generally sustainable public finances um, over time. Um, but I think one of the things we've realized is that trying uh, you know, that uh, uh, over the past 10 years is that assessing sustainable public finances requires a much longer term, much more rounded view much more recognition of what the impacts of your spending are, not just now, but over the future. And that goes for health, education, but a lot of other things as well. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. I'm going to, uh, I'm afraid, uh, curtail it matters at this stage. There's one more witness to go. But I want to thank you very much for giving up your time and wish you well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Alona Hackett, please, last witness. Thank you. The... Uh... The last witness of the evening is Zara Ali. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Good Hi. Right. I have a, a witness statement from you um, dated the 21st of May. And also, I understand that you've written a poem. 
Yes. But first, I wanted to ask you, uh, uh, well, just ask you to confirm um, who you are and um, what uh, what you do um, day to day. Um, so I'm 17 years old. And as you said, my name is Zahra Ali. I'm currently studying my A-levels, hoping to pursue medicine. And I'm actually tr hoping to pursue medicine in Kings. But let's see how that all goes. But um, I think I can bring a unique perspective from a student side and yeah yeah you you talk in your witness statement about 2020 being your gcse year yeah so um how what happened how did you feel when the first lockdown came well i think there was because the government left so much silence there was a lot of room for students to build up the anxiety be so worried about their futures because this year and my last year was like very important in my education last year was my GCSEs and this year is my A-levels and what was hard was we for a few months we were left in just silence we didn't know what was happening and I think for me it was just like what do I do next do I move on do I think about let me start on my A-levels things or do I just like it was just a lot of waiting around, and that was quite hard to do. Because you, you talk in your witness statement about um, how you felt when exams were cancelled. Yeah. And Can I think... Tell a bit about yeah. that? Yeah. So I think for five years, you're, like, studying and really, like, trying hard, like, do the best that you can do. And the last two years, I really put my head down, and I said, you know what, I want to do, like, something important. And what was really saddening was that after all that work, I had to like kind of let go. And it's very hard to like let go after, you, you know, you put so much work in and you just don't want to leave it up to like, in, in a way that people were like determining your fate. And it was very hard because you're like, oh, what's going to happen next? Like there was no sense of like, at least if you sat the exams, you can say to yourself that, hey, this is what happened. I worked hard, but you know, these are my grades. But there was always like a sense of, what if they get it wrong? What if this is not right for me? What if there was lots of what ifs and that wasn't, and that is something that you don't, you didn't need at that moment. Um, on a really practical level, what was it like missing the last day of school? It's a big day, isn't it? It was so like really, really upsetting because, you know, you create these great friendships in all those years that you have with these people and and I mentioned in my witness statement, all those days of like laughter, you just try and cram it into this one last day and you like say to yourself, this is my last day, I have to say goodbye to everybody. And it's not normal, like the last day that you normally have is like, hey, I can see you, like maybe tomorrow we can meet up again. But now it's like, this is the last day, we're going into lockdown. We can message, but you know, it's not the same as seeing people face to face and carrying on those friendships. And it was a bit straining and I guess, you do learn who your good friends are at the end, but it was definitely hard to let, let go on that last day. Of course. So, and now you're doing your A-levels, is that yeah. right? Yeah. Well, I, I wish you all the best with those. Um, I'd like to move on, if I may, to the poem that you've published um, that's, um, that's on the internet. Um, and as I understand it, you're going to read that out in full. But if you'd just like to uh, just give an introduction as to why you wrote the poem and, and how it came about. I think with the whole pandemic, everyone's trying to find the release, like the way to get their story like out into the open, try and deal with everything that's happened. And for me, it's writing. So I have to like, sometimes when I can't make sense of things that's going on in my head, I just have to write it down. So 
that's why I wrote the poem in the first place. And I think it's helped me like discover a lot about my whole grief process and everything that's gone on. So, so what's the what's the poem about? process um, there's a lot that has happened to me in the past year uh, first of all my health has been affected by the pandemic I'm having post-covid problems so like I have liver inflammation and all that horrible from stuff from covid <laughs> yes from covid so it's an ongoing investigation and yeah I'm hoping to get to the bottom of it so that's one aspect another aspect is um in December, I lost both of my grandparents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really sorry about that. Um, and I wish you well, both with your studies and with uh, recovery from COVID. So um, now, um, I don't know if the panel have any questions, but if they, once they have finished their questions, if there are any, um, I'd like to invite you to read your poem. Um, does the panel have any questions for Zara, please? I think we don't. I'm going to intervene, if I may, and just say I think it would be entirely appropriate if if Zara were to end our hearing today with her poem. Uh, There may be other questions, but I hope nobody minds. We should give you a special place. Yeah. Thank you. I wasn't preparing to read the whole thing, but I guess I'll do it anyway. We're looking forward. Don't worry. Take your time. Take your time. Dear Grief. I have learned you're really just love, all the love I want to give and cannot, all the unspent love that gathers up in the corners of my eyes, the lump in my throat and and in the hollow part of my chest. Today marks two months and 16 days since I lost my first love and the day you also entered my life. It began with so much foolish hope that he would return from the hospital like all the other times and ended with disappointment. Through my blur of tears, I remember seeing him finally look peaceful. There was no more laboured breaths, no more swollen stomach, no voice muffled behind the oxygen mask. But there was a small smile. He was home. That night you nagged at me, telling me the more you move on, the more you're leaving him behind. The more you move on, the more your memories will fade. They'll be replaced with new ones. Do not move on. On the day of the funeral, I could not attend because I had to self-isolate. So I sat alone in the room and told myself the story. A long time ago, in a small village in Bangladesh, there lived a young boy called Hanif Ali. He loved to ride his stallion, Mon Bahadur, Braveheart. At age of seven, he lost his father, the breadwinner of the family. At the t- tender age of 14, he was offered the opportunity of a lifetime to come to England. He did not speak a word of English, yet he worked tirelessly, day and night, providing for his mother and family. He faced many challenges, racism, homesickness. He was just a little boy who missed his mother. I recited that story repeatedly and and let you unleash the eternity of pain. A long time ago in a small village in Bangladesh, there lived a young boy called Hanif Ali who loved to ride his stallion. Ten days later, his wife joined him. She had no underlying medical condition. She was young, only in her mid-sixties. She took the grave next to him. It was as if that place was reserved for her. She, put, she was put in an induced coma and she never knew her love was gone. It was though her heart felt it and she knew she did not want to live without him. In those 10 days, grief had already started to reshape me. I learned that time should not be taken for granted. We need to treat every day like our last. And in doing so, we start appreciating every day for what it is. Life has no guarantee. So why did I expect her to live for years to come? Grief drew me to be anxious, to be cautious, and hold my loved ones so close to my heart. 
I started having nightmares of losing more people I love. I started becoming clingy. I could not be away from my mum for more than 10 minutes at a time. He took over my life. I could, not go, I could not get on with my day without feeling tightness in my chest, without having to gulp for air as I tried to swallow back the tears. I became an emotional wreck. Never in my life had I been this weak. I still remember that day that you let, I let you drown me. Shove me under the deep waters. I refused to move. Lungs gasping for air, throat burning as I rolled around in pain. I felt I was like, felt as though I was having a heart attack, as if I was going to die. But all I did was roll around, waiting for it to pass. I remember my mum calling 111-999. No one could get here fast enough. I could see her pacing up and down. I told her to calm down and take a deep breath, but I refused to take my own advice. I lay on the bed until the ambulance arrived. My health got worse and worse by the day. I started thinking about all the times I was ill and they was there. They used to make sure that I was treated like a princess. My love would make, make me my favorite food and she would always pray for me to get better. Who, what was I gonna do without her prayers? Who is going to care, care about me as deeply as they did? Why is, that, why is it that all the good people have to go? You drove me to a dark place. I, I was always scared to be alone with my thoughts. I never trusted myself, scared that I would drown again. I was hospitalized. My mother worried that I would leave her, I, that I would die young. Why did you bring me so much pain? Why couldn't you just go away? I used that time to reflect and spend time with my mom, focus on something other than my thoughts. When I left, I knew I wanted to take charge. No more sitting in the passenger seat. I wanted to honor their memory. I wanted to teach others what they taught me. Nano, grandmother. You devoted your life to your husband, to your religion and your family. You always helped and wanted nothing in return. Your kindness went a long way. All the neighbors talk about how they miss you and your go-to smile. All of your friends miss you at the mosque. They all called and cried. They miss you. Dr. Anna Livingston called. She said that she can't believe you're gone. That the Nanu grandmother who lives downstairs misses your walks and she misses her best friend and forever thinks of you as a sister. She's looking out for your children and your grandchildren now. Nanu, I want you to know that I miss you and did what I, you told me to do. I shrouded your body. You always asked me, are you sure you could do it? Truth be told, I never knew if I would be strong enough. I always thought I'd be in my 20s, if not 30s, when you died. But I was only 16 and I shrouded your body. I'm so proud of myself. I know how much it meant to you that I did it. And I did not realize how much it would mean to me. You look so beautiful, even in death. You were beaming and your hands were so, still so soft. Your face so calm, ageless. I knew that you were gone to a good place. Nana, granddad. You always had a way of making making everyone feel special. You were just, you were caring for animals. You treated them as your friends, as equals. You gave so much to your family so that they could have the best life possible. You are what a man should be. I wish I could see you one more, one more time, just for five more minutes to give you one more kiss. But I take comfort that I will see you in Jannah, heaven. <sighs> Inshallah, God willing. We'll be the ones racing our horses through the fields, free of the world of, world of hardship. Love you and tell me again. Nanu and Nana, you have given me so much. I know now that you were both too good for this world. That was your time to go. When I become a doctor, I'm going to treat my patients with the same kindness you taught me and with the same welcoming warmth you made strangers feel. I know you are with me every step of the way. And Nanu, if I make it, I know your prayers got me to that day. Love you until we meet again.
Grief is like a stranger who shows up on a stormy night, begging you to let him in. The longer you make him wait, the angrier he gets. He wrecks your house and damages your most precious thing. He throws a tantrum, ripping at your curtains, spilling coffee in the carpet. The only way to make it stop is to give in. He wants you to accept him. He wants you to listen. And whether you like it or not, grief is here to stay. I know, I know grief is not something I can escape. I know some days you will drown me and other days you will walk with me side by side. There's still a lot I'm learning about you, but there's one thing I know for certain. I do not want you to ever leave me because I never want to forget them. Well, may I thank you very much indeed. So many thoughts, so many feelings. Grief like a stranger. I think it's very moving. Thank you for giving us your innermost feelings. Thank you. I want to hand back now to uh, Wendy Savage, I think, if she's still there. Yes, I am still here, and that was very moving. Um, thank you very much, Tyler. Um I think we've had a, a very interesting evening, and I'm sorry I forgot to tell you at the beginning that we had um, the economist um, coming, uh, as well as the people talking about the effects of the pandemic on, on people. Um, the... Um, that's my piece of paper. What am I going to say? <laughs> I'd just like to thank all the contributors very much for their um, statements, written statements tonight. And um, I'm sure we all have a lot to go away and think about. Um, the next session will be in a fortnight's time, the 16th of June, and that will be the last session. So if you have any comments, you know you can send those to the website www.peoplescovidinquiry and um, I thank everybody again for a very moving evening. Good night.